0: So, as we watch spring emerge here in Colorado, I don't know if it's uh, like this in your yard, but I look out in my yard and, and have for all winter and thought, well, that's dead, that's probably not coming back to life, and that's, that's done, and we've planted trees. I think at one point I counted 25 different trees uh, in our little postage stamp there, and, and many have gone on to a better place, tree heaven. Um, there were a few that we had much hope for that that This year, I looked at him and I thought, I mean, it looks just like a twig. I think it's dead. And and then over the last week, over the last week, some buds began to appear. And it's just this little tiny sprig. And you think, you just, hope, hope springs forth. This is what spring does to us. It teaches us that hope is not misplaced, that there is hope in all kinds of things, whether it's a relationship, your own spiritual life, your Desire to make a difference in the world. And so, planted helps us um, grasp some of these things that were taught in Scripture and throughout the Gospels regarding all the various agricultural planting, seeds, trees. It's all through the Bible. So, last week we told a story about Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, we told you for a few weeks we'll talk about the fig tree. And this is important because as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's hungry, he sees a fig tree in a distance, and it's got leaves on it, and his assumption is if it's leaving, it's fruiting, and that's a common, normal assumption. Even if it's not fruit season, he had full right, full expectation to think that behind some of those leaves there's gonna be a fig, there's gonna be a little snack for me, and he's hungry, he walks up to it, moves the leaves and finds no figs, and he's a little irritated, angry, maybe, I don't know. And at that moment, I think Jesus thought, this tree reminds me of Israel. It's got leaves and no fruit. It is all show, but no substance. And when he sees this, he says these words. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Two things going on there. The first I mentioned, Israel, but then the second is really about us, that that Jesus throughout his ministry condemns the hypocrisy that we would wear the label Christian and have no fruit to offer. Or that we would be more concerned about appearances and not have the substance of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus says this, when he says, look, no one eats your fruit again, eventually the fruit tree withers and dies. And when I see this happen in this story, I I understand it, but a little part of me is, is fearful when I read it. I don't know if it's true for you or not, because there have been many times in my life when I felt like what was needed for the occasion or the conversation or the circumstance was a little bit of fruit, and I had nothing to give, I had nothing to offer. Uh, what was called for was some, some patience or some kindness and what I gave instead was maybe harshness or rudeness or I just threw my hands up and said, I'm done with that, this is enough, I, I can't do it. And if that's you, then this week is, is important. What we'll talk about, another story about a fig tree, will maybe fill in the gaps and what we have is just one slice, one view, one perspective. And I think it happens during the last week of Jesus' life. It's an important one and we don't want to miss it. But the rest of the story gives us the fuller picture of who God is. This story, this cursing of the fig tree that happens, it's in two gospels. It's in Matthew and Mark. And usually if it's in Mark and in Matthew, it's also in Luke somewhere. But interestingly enough, Luke has a different take on the whole fig tree thing. He does it in a few different ways. We don't have time to talk about all of them. But the one parable that Jesus tells, his take on the fig tree is almost the opposite at blush at first blush it is the opposite but it's not really he has a different story about the fig tree and here's the other reason why it matters my guess is is that in your life this is true in my life some of us spend some time confused when we're reaping and sowing the things that we don't understand why we're reaping or why we're sowing In other words, you think you might be sowing goodness at work but what you're getting back is retribution or judgment or it could be in a relationship. You think you're sowing forgiveness and grace but what you're getting back is expectation and disappointment. If you find yourself at times confused about reaping and sowing and all the things that are happening in your life feel like it's not happening for all the good reasons or the right reasons, then these stories I think will... Help connect some of the dots for you so that you understand the harvest that you're getting in spite of what you might be sowing. And so when Luke tells the story, this is what he tells. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and he came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it, but he was what? Always disappointed. Both of the passages, last week's real fig tree and this week's a made-up fig tree that Jesus is conjuring for his parable, both of these stories involve the same kind of tree, fig trees without fruit. And apparently they should have fruit. Like we said, even in... The cursing of the fig tree, the leaves indicate that fruit should be there. And this is a story about a man who planted a tree in his garden. He came again and again to see if there's any fruit. And he comes away disappointed every time. There's no fruit. And finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited how long? Now, I don't have a fig tree, never had a fig tree, not a fig farmer. Um, After reading and studying all this stuff, I thought, you know, I'd like a fig tree. I think I want a fig tree. So maybe we'll get one and put it in a potted plant. That's a good way to do it in Colorado. It's not good to plant them outside here because they don't bear fruit much. But if you, if you do this and you get a fig tree, especially one that is new or young, it, three years is, in everything I've read, every farmer expects a fig tree to fruit in three years. In fact, fig trees fruit before they're supposed to fruit. You've ever had early fruit from a tree and you think, well, maybe it'll be better next year because that tasted awful that's common for fig trees. They often fruit before they can make mature or good tasting fruit. And so you gotta wait, you gotta pick them, you gotta prune them, all that kind of stuff, and then you wait for the good figs maybe the next year. But after three years, it's commonly expected that if your fig tree isn't fruiting, something's wrong with your tree. And so I don't know if that was commonly understood in Jesus' day, but he includes this little detail, three years. And there hasn't been a what? Do you ever feel like that describes your week? Not one single fig do I have to offer. I've quit carrying and I have no figs to give. This is absolutely, don't (laughs) chuckle at that, okay? That's just, that was a test and about six of you failed it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. Now this is the reaction that I'm afraid of. No fruit, it's time to be done. I'm gonna cut my losses. This is the reaction that I fear. And this reaction from this owner, the owner of the garden, is one that Jesus tells in this story. Now you remember how a parable works, right? I mean, the the cursing of the fig tree is one thing. Disciples are there, witnesses, Happened a certain way and even different accounts, of course, but we kind of have the facts. This story, Jesus gets to make up because he's making it up himself. And he uses the story to give us some understanding of the character of God, how the world works and what happens in the spiritual realm. There are many connections as this series hopes to drill into our hearts between the spiritual realm and the natural realm, and one represents the other, and we can count on those things to work well in concert together. And this gardener, this this owner, not the gardener, this owner has run out of patience, and he's done. He's done. If you grew up in a church that was legalistic or Brought with it a set of expectations, or there were measurements that many people didn't ever make, and they were treated in a certain way, or maybe you were treated in a certain way. This beginning of the parable can bring back some of those experiences and feelings, and you might even sense at times that God feels this way about you. It's been years since anything good has come out of that life. Time to be done. But then he has a chat with the gardener. The gardener walks up to the owner and says, the gardener gardener answers, sir, give it what? Let's say it again. Sir, give it. There's something in me that when I read this parable and I get to that line, I think, I can breathe again. I, I like that. Not only do I like what's happening in that story, I like that Jesus constructs this story. I like that he tells this story. I like that when he's describing to me something about who God is, that Jesus describes it this way. Let's give him another chance. i messed up so many times. That's all right, that's all right. Just hang on a minute. Let me give you one more chance. Let's do it. Now, the gardener's gonna give uh, three different kind of bits of answers to the owner, to the person who owns the garden. And this is the first one. Here's the second Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and what? Plenty of fertilizer. The the literal translation, okay? In the the old translations, before we had some sensibilities about us, in the old translations, it says, uh, and I'll spread about some dung. That's what it says. Uh, Some of the newer ones say manure, uh, but, you know, we all know that. We're good You know, folk, we understand what it means. But literally it says, I will fling about. I will dig it up and fling about some dung. Which is the best thing to do with dung, is to fling it about. (laughs) If you're gonna spread it, you don't want it all in one place. You know what that does? That's not good. You should fling it about. That's what you should do. And so that's exactly what the gardener says. Let's leave it another year. I'm gonna give it some special attention. And so, next time somebody says anything about special attention, just go get your manure pile <laughs> and you know what to do. And then he says this: And if we get figs next year, fine. If not, then what? Now, it's a pretty short story. That's the whole story, that's where it ends. And it ends there, and I wonder if there would be more to the story: what would happen? What would occur next? So, in our understanding, our experience of God's love, our experience of His grace and mercy—if our experience of His love is a little bit anemic, maybe it's a little bit—I don't know—we maybe perceive that God is a, something other than a gracious and loving God. Then we may read this parable and think, "Well, this is a parable of an ultimatum. That's what it is. This is a parable of a or else." But when I read the story, I read it as a story of one more chance. Let's give it another year. I believe it's a story of God's patience, of his goodness, of his kindness, of his enduring love for me and for you. Like I said, it's a short story. I don't know if Jesus were going to add another chapter to the story, what would have happened. But when this gardener says this, well, you know, if we don't get figs next year, fine. You can cut it down. If we do, it's great, you know, next year. He kind of kicks the decision down the road a bit. I imagine that if Jesus were to add another chapter to the parable, this gardener has some ideas about this tree, and if the owner came to him and said, it's next year, we don't have any figs, I think this gardener would say, but look how big the leaves are. Look how big the leaves are, they're so healthy. The trunk is so much thicker. I mean, would it be a shame if we had this tree for four years, and we were one year away from some <laughs> really good fruit, and we cut it down this year? I think that's the next chapter. But that's my imagination and we don't need to go beyond what's written or what Jesus says. Let's stick to the text and let's stay with the story and understand that this is a story of God's patience, his patience with me and his patience with you and his desire for us to grow and bear fruit even if it seems like there's no fruit to be seen. And so, same as last week's parable, we have a fig tree, it's got no fruit, and the owner and the gardener, they have a chant, because fruit should be normal for a tree like this. It's been three years. There should be some fruit. But we know this isn't about trees, right? And we know this isn't about fruit, really, Last week we we put this list up on the screen and we talked about the fact that we don't want anybody to approach us that sees the leaves of our following Jesus and they expect to see some fruit and to get some fruit and they come up empty handed and don't have anything. This is all about last week, this week, and really the whole series is about spiritual fruit and what we have to offer other people. And we want, absolutely, we want to be people that in your workplace, in your relationships, in your parenting, in your marriage, you have these kinds of fruits to give in all kinds of circumstances. That's what we want. But sometimes we don't. That happened to you this week? When You had an opportunity, somebody to come up and get a little fruit and what they got was not good fruit or maybe no fruit at all. It happens to me, it happens to you, it happens more often than we want to admit. And in both of these circumstances, a real tree and a parable tree, it happens. There's a tree, should have fruit, and it doesn't. And I believe that this experience in the parable and in many other places throughout scripture unearths an important truth, an important Reality that I don't think I've heard talked about very much in the context of church life and church community that I believe Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable. And it's this, and it's important, so we'll go slow. There is an unspoken and unreasonable expectation that we, followers of Jesus, not everybody, we, but we'll just say we, followers of Jesus, should have a what? endless supply of spiritual fruit I think this is the expectation and it's often unspoken but not always and I'm going to call it unreasonable but even if you take out those words and just say I think it's understood that all Christians all followers of Jesus should have an endless supply of fruit I think most of us would think well yeah aren't we Aren't we supposed to? And what happens when we don't? Isn't that a problem if we don't? And the truth is, when we ponder this, and when you understand the statement, we have this unspoken and unreasonable expectation. For some of you, it's what you expect of yourself. That you showed up to a circumstance and didn't have it to offer, and you feel like it was a failure on your end, and you wanna deal with it, and it puts you in a place of judgment. For some of you, it's not so much about yourself at times, it's what you expect of other people. That there was, should have been some fruit on that tree and they sure didn't have anything to offer you in that experience and they were rude and short or unkind or unforgiving. And because of that, you store up bitterness and expectation of other people. And odds are those two thoughts are linked. Whatever judgment you pass on yourself is likely the judgment that you pass on other people These two go hand in hand, judgment of others, judgment of ourselves. And when we have this unspoken and unreasonable expectation and we understand the kinds of spiritual fruit that we want to be giving to other people, what I'm saying is this, is that if one of us were to run out of any of these things, there is an expectation that something is wrong with you or wrong with them. Somebody has failed and it's gone terribly awry and judgment is deserved. This, like I said, many times is not unspoken, but often it is. In fact, if we were to say out loud, you know, I think every Christian ought to have an endless supply of fruit, we would say, well, that sounds a little ridiculous. That can't be right. That can't be true. But in our interactions, we expect it. And because of this unspoken and unreasonable expectation, We have learned the finely tuned art in Christian circles and Christian communities of faking fruit. So if you can't feel it, you can't express it in a genuine way, you should at least act like you have it. And we do. And we see it. And so we experience what we would call fake joy. You know the difference, right? Between authentic joy and fake joy. Or... Maybe fake kindness. This is what happens with this unspoken and unreasonable expectation. When we have fake fruit in the context of a Christian community, followers of Jesus, well, that is the very thing that Jesus warned us about when he cursed the fig tree to begin with. You have the appearance of faith, but nothing of substance. You have the claim that you follow Jesus, but there's no fruit behind it. Unreasonable? Is it unreasonable that this would be an expectation? One of my favorite passages is in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says this here's how it starts Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And then verse 3 says this. That person is like a, does anybody know what's next? Oh, it's like a tree. Oh, we're back into agriculture. That person is like a tree that is planted by, does anybody know? A stream of water. Oh, we understand this in Colorado, don't we? You can be driving in eastern Colorado and have no idea where water is until you see what? Bunch of trees. And you go, well, I don't know what's there, but I guarantee you water is. It's a stream of some kind because these trees are massive and large. It, here's what the verse says, okay? Verse three. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Say this with me. Which yields its fruit. When? There is no tree that fruits all year long. If it did, it would be some nasty fruit. Eventually it would be worth nothing at all. It would have zero taste or goodness or density or nutrients. Would have nothing at all in it that would be worth consuming. There is no tree that fruits all year long. Even the scriptures say a tree that is nourished and has plenty of water, it yields its fruit when? In a season. That's it. Now, look, I know that our perception and our understanding is that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you should be kind, of course, that you should have goodness and self-control. I'm describing what we would call or what Paul would call in the book of Galatians, the fruits of the, and this is the expectation. But in the Christian community, we have confused two ideas and made them one. And so I will say it this way. We have to be extremely careful and very thoughtful that we do not confuse spiritual, what? With a Christ-like, and this is so important. It shapes our expectations of ourselves. It shapes our expectations of other people. How we dig into relationships and relate to each other. Because we have confused these things, we have developed a culture of hypocrisy in the church. And that culture of hypocrisy means that we value leaves above fruit or we value appearances over what's happening deep inside an individual. Listen very close. Church communities that understand the difference between spiritual fruit and Christ-like virtue, they allow people to come as they are. They allow people to grow at their own pace. And because they understand the difference of these things, people do not have to pretend to be something that they're not. They can be honest and authentic, and they can grow in Christ as well because they know the difference between spiritual fruit and Christ-like virtue. Fruit grows in season. Here's how Peter said it in his second letter, okay? So mixing a little Paul, mix in a little Peter with some of the gospel of Luke, okay? Here's how Peter says it. He says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for a what? Very good. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. In other words, God has given us what we need. He's given us what we need to grow and to become more like Jesus. He has. And then he says this a couple verses later. Same chapter, second letter of Peter. He says this. So for this very reason, what does he say? Make every effort. And now he's going to tell us what to make every effort toward. He says this. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to your goodness, what? And to knowledge you should add. And to self-control you should add. And these qualities continue to get listed. He includes godliness Mutual affection, and he finally moves from mutual affection to what? And then he says this in the very same context, the very next verse. He says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, then you will keep from becoming ineffective in your knowledge and understanding of your life. In other words, he's describing fruit or virtue. Which is it? He's describing a virtue, a character quality that somebody has in their life. And when he describes this, you can see some similarities with the fruit of the Spirit, can you? He's listed some fruit of the Spirit, hasn't he? Can you pick one or two out? Self control, what else? Goodness, that's right. Very good. And as he picks some of these out, you can see that he has some overlap in his life and in Paul's writings between the fruit of the Spirit and virtue, but there is a different description. In other words, when Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit, he could have used any word he wanted. He could have used virtue, he could have used attribute, he could have used piece of your character or some sort of behavior, but he didn't. Very specifically, and I think very clearly, he says, these are the fruit of the Spirit. And this is something that comes in a seasonal way. But now, Peter is describing these qualities that get added to your life. And if you were to understand the difference between spiritual fruit and Christian virtue, I I would say it this way. This is key. Spiritual fruit is what? Seasonal and occasional. That's right. And Christ-like virtue, what? It takes a lifetime. For somebody who grew up in a house where Lying got you ahead, and truth was whatever you decided it wanted to be in a given day. How long do you think it would take you to establish the virtue of truthfulness as a part of your character? How long do you think it would take? It might take a lifetime. For some of you who grew up in a home where a work ethic was key to your faith and key to your life, and working just meant Earning your way. And if you didn't earn your way, well, the verse around your house was, well, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't what? He shouldn't eat. Some of you got quoted that when you were growing up. Bless your hearts. All the Protestant baggage you've got. I'm sure it's thick. And so to convince that man or woman that grace is real and that it is a free gift, how long would it take? A lifetime. A lifetime. A lifetime. For someone that comes to Jesus and what's needed in the context of their marriage or maybe a complicated work relationship is a sense of patience or maybe even kindness, how long would it take to be able to offer somebody, the context of that relationship, some patience or some kindness? Well, it would take, I don't know, the right season. It would probably be occasional. This is why you feel at times You know what, yesterday I had it all to give to my kids. I had it to give and I gave it freely and I sat on the floor and played Legos for three hours while the dishes weren't done. But today I don't have it to give anymore. Why? Well, it's because spiritual fruit is seasonal and occasional. This is why you feel schizophrenic in your spiritual life. At times you have something to give and at times you don't. And Christ-like virtue Well, it takes a lifetime. In other words, the best analogy that we can give you is Psalm 1, this tree that is planted. This tree that is planted developing Christ-like virtue. Well, Christ-like virtue grows about as slow as rings on a tree and about as slow as roots that go deep down into the ground. It takes years and years and years to grow the depth of roots and the width of the trunk to support a strong and healthy and mature tree. Fruit, wow, it pops out all the time, every year even. In fact, a fig tree will fruit in February and March if it's really healthy, twice in the same season. From one fig tree, you can get anywhere from 200 to 300 figs. That's a lot of fruit. It's incredible. If you want figs in December, you're going to have to ship them from somewhere because they won't grow on that tree. Why? It's seasonal and it's occasional. And this, when understood, means that you give immense amounts of grace to people who at a given point in time don't seem to have any fruit. And you receive that same grace when you're fresh out of fruit yourself. Not only that, but when you are struggling with developing a a virtue in your life, you know that we're not gonna measure things by days and by weeks. We're not going to measure them in this way at all. We're going to measure them in terms of a lifetime. And God's grace, as you develop virtues, means that there is plenty of success, likely even more failure, and in between, lots of growth. Understanding these two ideas, well, I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. When he approaches a tree that has no fruit, and he says, the gardener says, let's give it another shot. Let's fling some dung about and let's see if we can get something going with this tree. And because he says that, there's one more thought I want to leave you with before we take communion is this. When he says, leave it another year, I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. Why? Well, the hope is, the hope is that there will be fruit. Next year, there'll be some fruit. We'll give it some time. But not only will we give it time, we'll give it these things to see if it can come about. So here's my question for you as you come into this week, and it's this. If you have no fruit to give, if you find yourself a bit barren, it's gone. When patience is called for, you give impatience. When kindness is called for, you just wanna be rude. Maybe you've learned the habit of not saying everything you think, but you don't have it to give. What do you engage in that is a Well, according to the parable, the analogy would be special attention and plenty of fertilizer. What is it? What do you do? Where do you go? What habits do you have? What relationships do you have where you feel nourished and you can draw into special attention, plenty of fertilizer? What is the fertilizer that puts you in a place where God can have an environment in your heart and in your life, in the context of your week, and your schedule, your habits, where something can grow that is not of you, that is God's and God's alone. For some of you, it's engaging in scripture. For some of you, it's worship. For some of you, it's solitude and prayer, thoughtful meditation on God's words. What is it that allows the fruit to go? If you don't know the answer to that question and engage in those things regularly, then the seasonal and occasional fruit are gonna be really hard to come by. I'm gonna ask our servers to make their way and, and to prepare. When we take communion, every week, we get an example of the agricultural prowess of the region of Jerusalem. It's in John 15 that Jesus compares our spiritual life to the grapes and the fruit that grows on the vine. And once again, we see God's patience in it. What happens to a, a piece of the vine or a whole vine that isn't producing fruit? Well, John 15 says that one very special thing happens. The, the, the gardener lifts it up off the ground so it can get sunlight. He cleans it off. The vine dresser gives it special attention, some fertilizer, whatever is needed. And then they tie it up and let it grow and produce the way it's supposed to. When Jesus holds up the cups of Passover, the last night he's with his friends, all of this imagery is in mind. In fact, Jesus had just given the teaching contained in John 15 about the fruit and the vine and staying connected. And then he held up the most basic thing that grows, this, this grain that's pounded into flour and made into bread. This most simple illustration of the body of Christ And he held it up to his friends and he said, this is my body. Take it. It's broken for you. And he took it as we will take bread in just a moment. And then when he held up the cup in front of his friends, he said, this is a new cup. It's a new covenant. This represents my blood. Take it and drink, all of you. And Jesus institutes this meal that we would have in our memory when we gather here in this place. And so in just a moment, when we mill about this room and share communion together, as we do that, when you receive the elements, what will be said to you is that the body of Christ is here, it's broken for you. In other words, you have the nourishment that you need. And then you'll take the small cup, which represents this cup of the new covenant, This is the blood of Christ, and it's poured out for you. It's the gifts of God for the people of God. And so, Lord, today, as we come and take communion together, as we move about this room and pass friends and family, folks that have made up the fabric of this church for years and some that are as new as this week, Lord, we recognize that you have given us all that we need. And so, Lord, there may be days when we have no fruit to bear, no fruit to give. And there may be days when we find ourselves lacking a specific virtue that, well, it just seems like it ought to be a part of my life, following you, knowing you, loving you. Lord, we pray that you would give us a sense of your grace. And so we hear the words of this gardener. Let's give it some time. Let's fertilize it. Lord, we believe and declare today that we're made in your image. And as we receive these elements and we remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of your son, we declare the testimony of new life The first happens in Jesus. It also happens in us. And so we receive these elements with gratitude, remembrance, self-reflection, and love. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. We all say, amen.